Good evening, everyone. I can already tell that wearing a long sleeve shirt was a bad idea for myself. I have this ongoing discussion with myself that anytime I'm on stage, I need to wear short sleeves because I just start sweating. I don't know what it is. Um, and uh, I can already feel it coming. So if you see me wiping my head halfway through, I'm apologizing beforehand. I also promised myself that I would at some point try and do the whole sitting while I teach thing on Wednesday nights that Brian and Vic do. They make it look so cool, you know, uh, and uh, I was going to do that tonight, and then I forgot to get it set up. So I'm standing again, so I'm going to try and stand in one place. Um, but we're continuing in Nehemiah, uh, so we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11. And uh, at this point in the book of Nehemiah, the wall has been completed uh, and so if you've been tracking with us or if you've studied Nehemiah before, you know that the whole, um, the, the whole story of the book, the whole narrative of the book is how Nehemiah was commissioned by God to return to Jerusalem from Persia and help build the wall around the city. Uh, and so that project at this point in chapter 11 has been, uh, has been completed and actually completed a few chapters earlier. Uh, the final posts have been secured uh, the doors and the gates are in place. The gatekeepers and the appointed singers have been assigned. Uh, they've even dedicated the wall, uh, and they went through this whole ceremony of covenant renewal uh, and rededicating themselves to the covenant. Uh, and so at last, this grand project that God had commissioned Nehemiah to do is finished, um, and the city of Jerusalem is finally protected from the enemies from the outside. So why doesn't the book just ends there. Like, why are there still three more chapters, two of which we're going to get into tonight and one we have for next week? Um, why doesn't it end? Uh, because the real work, here, here's, my, here's my proposal to you guys. I believe that the reason it doesn't end is because the real work is just beginning. Uh, the walls, they were important, uh, but the walls were there for a very specific purpose, and that purpose could now continue uh, and so what I want to do tonight, I'm, I'm going to spend a good bit of time on the front end. This is going to be kind of a long introduction. Uh, we're going to spend a good bit of time um, uh, looking at what I believe to be a parallel between the church today and the Israelites, the, the, the Jews in the time of Nehemiah. And so I kind of want to look at some parallels that I think would... Uh, would be helpful for us in understanding why these passages are important and that they're not just history, although they are invaluable as history. I don't want to undermine or negate that. Um, the, the history of God's people is, is beneficial on its own. If that's all it was, it'd be still great. But I'm going to say that it's more than that. It's not just historical. It's also, um, it's also a type. It's also a foreshadowing. We are, we are intended to see our growth and process and sanctification as believers in light of the past experiences of God's people. So, for example, and I'm going to backtrack a good bit all the way back to Ezra. Um, we know that, it, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're doing Ezra and Nehemiah back to back, by the way. That's, we shouldn't do it any other way, so I'm glad we're doing that. But uh, as you guys may remember, after living in exile for many years, uh, the Jews are finally given the choice by the grace of God they're given the choice to return back to their homeland. God calls them back um, to the promised land, to the, the land that he promised them, the land of their inheritance. 
and they're given a choice. They're not forced to go back, right? Um, the Jews have the option to stay in Persia, to continue in, uh, in the life that they had built there. Now, they had been in Babylon and Persia for, for generations at this point. And um, no, no doubt they had established themselves. They had built businesses. They had rooted uh, their families in this place. And the temptation to stay, I'm sure, was great. And we know that many of them did stay. Uh, and they said, maybe they thought to themselves, you know, I've, I've already invested so much here, and uh, this is now my home, right? This is just where, where we are. Uh, and so they're given a choice. You can either continue in the life that you've built for yourself, or you can come back to the home that God built for you. You can come back to the promised land that God has always intended for you. And um, it wouldn't be an easy trip, right? It's a dangerous trek back. We remember reading about that in the book of Ezra. Um, but not, not only is it a dangerous trek back, but it's also going to be hard work. Um, you're not returning to a kingdom that's already built. You're not returning to cities and streets and, 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 and things that are already in place. You're returning to build it back up. So God's saying, I want you to leave your comfort, leave the home you've built for yourself, Come back to the home I've called you to and get to work. It's going to be dangerous. Not only is the work going to be hard, but as soon as you volunteer for this calling, you place a target on your back because the enemies of God are now gunning for you. They're not concerned about the Jews who decide to stay, so far as we know, anyways. We didn't read anything about the Jews who are in Persia being under threat. Uh, not after Esther, anyway. We know they were in Esther, but uh, after that... Um, uh, it's like, okay, as long as you're there and you're not making trouble, that's fine. Uh, the enemies of God are worried not about them. They're worried about the ones who are coming back to build God's temple and the walls around God's city. Uh, and so it's not just about the work. Now they are in the crosshairs of God's enemies. And so, um, oh, and not only that, I almost forgot this. Um, it's not just enemies on the outside that they have to worry about. We also read that there's, they're under constant threat of, of enemies from within their own people, that there's this nagging tendency to go back to our old ways, that the very things, the very habits, the very sins that landed Israel in exile to begin with, um, they're, they're, they're down that same path right away. They're, they're already trying to oppress the poor and, and mingle their worship with other gods and commit idolatry. And Ezra and Nehemiah both have to constantly be like, hey, guys, what are you doing? This is what landed us in exile to begin with. And so it's not just enemies from without, it's enemies from within. And so, so I want to make a parallel from that to the new covenant believer in our journey, and, and you guys remember weeks ago my whole um, rant about the word journey, so I'm using it, um, <laughs> but our journey with Jesus to the promised land he has for us. Because we also, according to scripture, we also live as exiles and sojourners. Uh, scripture calls us sojourners in this world. This world is no longer our home. At one point, it was intended to be our home, but we know what happened. Uh, and it is no longer the home that God has for us. God also calls us out from our comfort zone in, in this world to a building project. Only we're not building the temple or a wall. Now we're building God's kingdom, 
right? God's called us to be kingdom builders. And the enemies of God aren't so much worried about us as long as we're content to be comfortable in the lives that we build for ourselves, right? Um, if, if we're content to blend in, if we're content to just kind of put down roots in this life and make sure that we work towards our comfort and our wealth and our futures uh, the way we envision them, we will encounter very little resistance from the enemy. But as soon as we answer the call to be kingdom builders, to leave that life behind, to take that track with Jesus and seek to build his kingdom, then we also place a target on our backs. And just like the Jews, um, it's not just the enemies of God on the outside that would love nothing more than to see us fail. Do you guys notice this? Uh, maybe this is just me. I feel like, you know, like um, internet algorithms always freak me out, you know, and one of the first things I do every day, maybe I shouldn't, but I do, is, is I'll go to a couple of different news pages and just, just to get a brief overview of what's happening in the world, right? And, and it seems like more and more, um, a lot of the headlines that I get fed are, you know, this church leader has fallen into adultery, or here's 10 reasons why younger people are leaving the church in record numbers, or here's this failing of the church or that failing of the church, and it seems like the world around us is just chomping at the bit to watch the church fail over and over and over again. Um, and it's not just, again, the outside enemies of God that we need to worry about, but within us, there remains uh, a defeated enemy that constantly seeks to reassert itself. Our flesh is always trying. Maybe it's just me. My flesh seems to be always trying to reassert itself and take back dominion from Jesus on the throne of my life. So enemies from without and enemies from within threaten to hinder the work of kingdom building for us as well. Um, and so... Um, and so Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, is not just history, it's also typology. Um, we are meant to see our journey and our process along with the Israelites. And all of this brings us, just like it did the Jews, to the point where, um, I'm going to use this term carefully, uh, where, where walls are needed, okay? And I understand, I understand that that. Uh, that the idea of, of walls or, or fences in and of themselves, they are inherently divisive. Uh, that's part of their purpose, to, to divide. Depending on who you ask, a wall or a fence, uh, it's, either, it's either designed or, or, or intended to create visible separation, visible distinction to say, here's where you, where you are, and here's where I am, and here's the boundary in between, it's always awkward when you're outside in your backyard and, and all of a sudden your neighbor's like building a fence around you. Um, maybe I find that awkward. Maybe no one else does. But I'm like, hey, neighbor, you know, and they're like, here's a fence. You know? um, but uh, whatever, it's fine. Um, and I also feel like, um, and I, this, there, there's a scene from, from an old show, and I can never remember which show it is, but this scene this lives in my head constantly, and, and I can't even remember what show it was from, but it, it and I'm sure many shows, many old sitcoms have adopted this trope where you have roommates who are, who are sharing a space and then tension builds. And then as they can't agree on, on, on how to split the space, then you know, the, the, the comedy of it is they'll, they'll 
put a visible divider, whether it's masking tape or paint or something, and then the whole show is about how they try to navigate that. And then at the end of the show, they all learn a valuable lesson about how it's better to work together than to divide. Right? Um, but we, we are divided pretty easily. Um, we, we, we put up all kinds of walls and barriers and fences because um, we like our privacy. We're not, uh, we don't embrace community the way God intended us to. Uh, we like to be divided off from others. Um, but I assure you that the walls that God called Nehemiah to build were not intended to divide. They were not intended to separate. They were intended to protect. Because, as I said earlier, um, a wall, a fence, it will either cause separation and division, or its purpose is to protect, to surround something of value, to surround something that is important, and to protect it from those who would seek to to enter in and, and steal, kill, and destroy. Um, and so what, what is it that the Israelites under Nehemiah are called to protect? Why do they need this wall? Um, well, they're called to protect their ability and their freedom to worship in the temple that they had just rebuilt. So in the book of Ezra, we see the temples being rebuilt. We know how that infuriated Israel's new neighbors. They weren't happy about that. They did everything they could to try and undermine that process. Um, and so um, a brand new temple doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you can't freely go in and seek the priest and offer your sacrifice or seek, um, seek counsel from, uh, from, from God or, or go in to, to worship. If you're constantly living under the fear that your enemies can just waltz right up the road, down through the city, up to the temple and mess up everything... Then, then you're not able to worship freely and safely. And so this fence, this fence's wall, um, its purpose is to protect, to protect the, the, the people's freedom to worship. And ultimately, ultimately, the walls are designed to protect a people who have been called out from the world to set the stage for the coming Messiah. Because the Messiah has to come. What would happen? What, what would have happened if Israel was, was still ingrained in the culture of Persia, what would have happened if God had never opened that door? Or if he had opened the door and the people never responded, and they said, no, no, as a nation, we're, we're good just to lose our identities in the world. We're, we're, we're no longer separate from it. Now we are just wrapped up completely, integrated into the people and the culture of Persia. Well, God's promises to Abraham would have been for nothing. God promised Abraham, he gave him covenant that not only would he build him into a great nation, but that through his descendants, the Messiah, the Savior of the world would come. And so, um, and so it might sound like I'm making a big deal out of just some, some walls, um, but God gave us a whole book in the Bible dedicated to how these walls were built. And I think it's for a reason. I think they're more than just walls. It's not just a barrier. God is saying, I am protecting something important, my covenant, I promised the Messiah is coming, and the way I have it planned, he's coming through these people, um, and, and it's not going to work if they're too busy being in, ingrained in the rest of the world. And so as God's people today, we also have something to protect. We also have something that God has entrusted to us. That is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel and our relationship with our King Jesus and as it turns out, we also are people called out of the world, 
called by God to set the stage for the returning Messiah, right? And so the parallel that I want to make is that we also have need of protective walls in our lives as well. Um, Not walls that that separate us from people. You know, again, I want to be very careful that that that's not the message that I'm conveying. Um, I don't think we're meant to build walls uh, to, 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 to separate us from the very people God has called us to serve and to love. But I believe that we can learn from the Israelites in Nehemiah how to build walls to protect the things that God's called us to, Um, how to protect our faith, how to protect our testimonies, how to protect our witness. The enemy would love for nothing more than to see our faith fail, than to see us grow discouraged, than to see us lose heart. The enemy would love for nothing more than to see our testimonies fail, to see us fall into temptation and, and, and have the, the, the witness of Christ in us ruined. The enemy would love for nothing more than, than to see our ability to share the gospel fail when we're overcome with fear and insecurity or distraction or we're just too busy. All of those things um, create failure in what we're called to do. And if we don't protect those things, if we don't build walls around those things, walls around our faith, walls around our testimony, walls around our witness, um, then they will fail. So how do we do that? How do you protect your faith? Well, you nurture it. You feed it from the word. You feed it from time and communion with Father. How do you protect your testimony? You develop spiritual disciplines of fleeing temptation, of guarding your tongues from saying things that the enemy can use to tear down the church. How do you protect uh, your, your, your witness? Um, my inner Awana clubber is going to come out. Anyone else ever been in Awana? Anyone else? Yeah. Some of you Calvary Chapel people haven't <laughs> been in Awana yet. Um, I remember being, being in Awana and like the, the whole theme verse, and I can never remember where it's found. It's funny. Yeah, I, think it's, I think it's like 2 Timothy something, 15. Um, Study to show yourself to be approved, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's that's ingrained in my head that we protect our witness by studying. We protect our calling by, by being a good worker. And we don't like that, the idea of, of working Uh, because we think it's like works theology, but God himself gave us that picture. Study to show yourself to be approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's how you build a wall of protection around your testimony. Ultimately, all those things, I believe, can be summed up, um, or the the nature of the walls that we build can be summed up in the idea of, um, of taking desperate hold of Jesus releasing everything else that we are and allowing him to conform us to everything that he is. And when we do that, Jesus himself becomes our wall of protection and no weapon formed against us can stand, right? Um, and so, again, I know that was a long intro, um, but I, I, I feel led to, to make that, that, uh, that contrast, that parallel, so that we can see ourselves in the people of Israel in chapters 11 and 12. Um, So I want us to look at, as as we go through chapter 11, we're not going to read every verse because a lot of this, a lot of chapter 11 and 12, they're like a bunch of lists of names. And just because we're not reading them doesn't mean it's not important. Um, As a matter of fact, um, 
for God to preserve the legacy of just everyday people uh, for all time in his word means that these were men of tremendous faith, that they honored God with not just their faith, but their obedience. And so God honors them by preserving their names for all time in his holy word. And so just because we're not going to read through all of them, I don't want us to think, oh, I can just skip that. That's not important. Um, I just don't want to mess up their names is really the bigger thing. Um, I want to honor them by not messing up their names. Um, But more than that, I also want to focus our time on what kind of men they were, on their character, on what God says about them, Uh, not just their names, but what God says about them. So there's four or five things here um, that we're going to look at that, that Scripture takes the time to say, now these men were like this, and these men were like this, or this was their job. And if that was their job, then we can learn something about them. Then for most of chapter 12, what we're going to see is um, God, God makes it a point to spend a whole chapter when he's not listing names, talking about worship and how part of what it means to be um, a person who takes hold of identifying with God is that we are people of worship. So that's a bit of a spoiler alert. That's at the end. We'll get there. Okay. Chapter 11, here we go. Um, It says in verse one, now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine tenths were to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So I wanna stop there. Um, So what's happening, yeah, so, the, the walls are finished. The city is ready to be inhabited. Building walls around a city does you no good if no one's going to live there, right? The so people have to live there. Um, people have to live there so they can protect it, uh, so they can continue to, um, to, to protect the, the temple from the enemies coming and trying to mess everything up. Um, but they run in, it seems like they run into a problem uh, because they can't get enough bodies in the city, so it says that the leaders automatically live there, which is appropriate because they represent the people. So um, the people's leaders automatic, automatically live there. And then there are several who it says they willingly offered themselves. And the way that's worded uh, doesn't sound like, like you're volunteering for something appealing, like you're willingly offering yourself. Usually that language is, is reserved for offering a sacrifice of some kind. And it's interesting that it says that the rest of the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. And even with the leaders and these volunteers, there still were not enough bodies in the city to keep it secure, to keep it safe. And so they have to enact this lottery system where one in 10 people are randomly assigned, okay, now you have to live in the city. Um, and so it's like, like the people themselves are kind of tithing of themselves because one-tenth of them have to live in the city. You would think that after all the effort um, to, to leave your home in Persia, uh, make the, the trip back to Jerusalem, face all kinds of dangers to build it back up, you know, um, you would think you would want to live there. <laughs> but apparently they, they didn't really want to live there. Uh, and, uh, and there's a few reasons for that. Um, first of all, by taking up residence in the city, you're, you're unable to go to your family's homeland. If you remember, in, um, as the people are, are, are taking the promised land under Moses and then Joshua, 
Like God divides up the land, and, and each tribe and each family in that tribe has their ancestral land. And, um, and every 50 years, it doesn't matter if you sold part of it or you had to like mortgage off some of it, all of it came back to your family. So it stayed in your family. Um, and part of the appeal of returning to Jerusalem uh, is to redeem and restore and build back your family's land, to reclaim it in the name of your family. Well, if you're living in Jerusalem, you can't do that. Um, if you're living in, in Jerusalem, you're essentially forfeiting your ability and your right to go and reclaim your family's land. Um, and also, for that matter, I'm not a great gardener, uh, but I know enough to know that uh, growing crops and, and huge fields of harvest is tough in a city, right? Um, I also don't do great with animals, but I know enough to know that having huge herds and flocks of animals is tough in a city. It'd be a lot, it'd be a lot easier if you're out in the plains, out in the grasslands, to build your wealth back up, to, to plant your seeds, to, to grow your crops, to, to, uh, to have your, your own animals. Uh, if you're living in the city, you, you don't have crops to harvest. If you're living in the city, you're not going to have a huge flock of animals. Um, you might be able to pick up a trade, but who are you going to trade with? <laughs> um, there aren't a whole lot of Jews who have returned. Most of them don't have a whole lot of money. Um, we've already established that the neighbors don't like you very much, and so you're not going to be opening your marketplace up to all the surrounding nations coming into trade, right? How are you going to make a livelihood if you're living in the city? So um, by volunteering to live in the city of, Jer in the city of Jerusalem, you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to risk losing my, my family inheritance. I'm going to risk losing my livelihood. And if the enemy does attack, where are they most likely to attack? Do you think they're concerned about, you know, Jedediah's goose farm down on, down on the path, you know, or, or the old farmer, what's his name, his corn crop? No. They're not going to attack there. They're going to come to the city. And so you risk losing your, your family inheritance. You risk losing your livelihood. And you risk your life. You risk your safety. Um, and so this is why the... The thought of living in the city itself was not very appealing. This is why those who volunteered to live in there were, were blessed and, and looked highly upon. This is why some of them had to be forced to live there uh, because they didn't want to. Um, and so, so what kind of people were going to live in God's city? I don't want to stretch the parallel too far, but I believe it's worth pointing out that scripture tells us that a new Jerusalem's coming, right? We read in Revelation 21 that there is a new Jerusalem coming, and I believe that we do well to consider what are we willing to risk to live in the new Jerusalem. Um, I don't think the tangible dangers are going to be there for us, but it does require sacrifice. If we're too focused on building our own lives, if we're too focused on building um, our homes and, and our little mini kingdoms, uh, we're not going to be able to take hold of what it means to live in the new Jerusalem when it comes. Um, so, 
Verse 6, I want to skip down to verse 6, because I want us to start looking at what kind of men these were. We know that, that uh, all the Jews who were there, they were from one of three tribes, right? They had to be from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Benjamin, or from the tribe of Levi. Uh, Judah and Benjamin were, uh, were from the southern nation who had been taken by Babylon, and so they were the only ones who would have been living in Persia. All the other tribes had been dispersed. No one knows where they were. They've been you know, kind of consumed and, and, and integrated by other nations. So it's either uh, from the tribe of Judah or Benjamin or the priestly tribe of, of Levi because they were all over the place. They were just assigned to all the different tribes. Um, so in verse 6, it says, talking about, um, and, and so what, what, what's, what's happening is uh, Nehemiah is numbering all the different names of the heads of the families who chose to live in the city or who were forced to live in the city. Um, and he's starting with the, the, the families from the tribe of, of Judah and he says, all the sons of Perez who dwelt at Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And so um, we know as we go through these numbers that there were significantly more people from the tribe of Benjamin than from the tribes of Judah and Levi. But this verse, verse 6, tells us that the people who were there from the tribe of Judah, they were not any ordinary Jews um, they're called the sons of Perez. And so if we turn back to Genesis chapter 38, we see who Perez was. Uh, Perez was one of the twin sons of Judah. Uh, the, the name Perez literally means breakthrough. And this is this, this crazy story of how, how he enters the world. In Genesis 38, uh, starting in verse 28, um, and so um, Tamar, who is Perez's mom, is giving birth. And it says, and so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, so again, there's, there's twin boys in her womb. One of them puts out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Now, that was important because whoever came out first had the rights of the firstborn, right? And so they had the inheritance, all those things. Um, then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And so Perez is like, no, no, me first. Right? Now, you're not going to beat me out of the womb. Uh, and she said, how did you break through? <laughs> she said, like, look at you. You just kind of forced your way out, didn't you? Um, uh, this breach be upon you. And so uh, the name Perez literally means to break through. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they have this reputation um, of, of being stout hardy men. Uh, and we know also that of the two twins of, of Judah, Perez was the one who, through whom the Messianic line came. So if we look over in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, in the genealogy of Jesus, it says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the genealogy of Jesus. And then Perez begot Hezron and so on. Um, and so the people of Judah who were living in Jerusalem, they weren't just ordinary Israelites. First of all, Nehemiah says they were valiant men. They were courageous. They were bold. They, they were ready. They, I, I would imagine these are the ones who didn't have to be forced to live in the city. I would imagine these are the guys who are like, I, I will take up that calling. I will go and I will defend the city um, because these are the, these, these are the families through whom Jesus eventually comes. These are the ones who, who break through. And um, as the people of God today, we need to be valiant people if we're going to take hold of the kingdom. We're going to be val we need to be valiant people if we're going to be effective kingdom builders. 
Um, we need to have that faith to break through the obstacles, uh, to say, it doesn't matter what the enemy throws at me, my God is strong enough. And because my God is strong enough, I know we will break through. Um, and so they weren't just ordinary guys. These guys were like valiant men. I just love that it says that about them. It says, it says the same thing also about a group of, of priests. Um, it says in verse 16, and this is the list of the, the priestly families. Uh, in verse 16, it says, Shabbatai and Josabad of the heads of the Levites had the oversight of the business outside of the house of God. Oh, I skipped something. Hang on, did I skip that? Yeah, I'm sorry. Verse 14. Um, and these brethren, and again, this, this is talking about the priests, um, and their brethren, mighty men of valor, were 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of one of the great men. So even the priests are called mighty men of valor. Uh, and you would have to be brave if you were a priest and your livelihood depended on temple offerings and the temple was in the middle of a city that was just being rebuilt. You know? um, and then it does, we'll go back down to verse 16. Um, and it says, talking about these Levites again, Shabbatai and Josabad of the heads of the Levites had the oversight of the business outside of the house of God. And so this might seem like not as impressive. You know, we're talking, we just, there was two descriptors of groups of people that were valiant and bold and uh, breakthrough-ers. Um, and then in verse 16, talking about these uh, these Levites, it says that they just had oversight of the, of the business outside of the house of God. What, what does that mean? Well, it was a Levite's job to make sure that the word of God was being read and taught throughout the nation. So the priests would stay in the temple, uh, and so the people would come to the temple, but, but if, if the people only encountered God's word and God's truth in the temple, then that, that wasn't going to be very often. And so it's up to the Levites to go traveling throughout the city and the countryside, bringing God's word, teaching God's word. And so these had to be diligent men. They had to be men who knew God's word um, and who were diligent to teach it and to proclaim it. All right, so uh, valiant men and hardworking, diligent men who knew God's word, Okay. Uh, and then in verses 22 and 23, and we're going to spend a good bit of time in this section. Also, the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah, of the sons of Asaph. Now, here's the trivia for the night, okay? Where else in the Old Testament do we see the sons of Asaph? Yeah, the Psalms, right? So if you're, if you're reading through the Psalms, a lot of times you'll see this was a Psalm of David, um, and then there's several of them that are attributed to the Psalms of, or to the sons of Asaph. And so the family of Asaph was like, they were like a singing Levite family. I think about like the Von Trapp family from Sound of Music, you know. Um, and they served under King David, and, and they're, they're, they were a, a, just a whole family of, of, of singers, and so this group of Levites were descended from the sons of, of Asaph. And listen to what it says. This is, this is how important their ministry is to God, because God arranges this. He says, For it was the king's command concerning them that a certain portion should be for the singers, a quota, day by day. So that meant that, that the king had given the command that um, a certain portion of, of funds uh, was set aside 
so that these worship leaders could focus exclusively on worshiping. Worshiping and leading the people in worship. Now, um, wouldn't that be cool for our worship leaders here? Just if you guys got paid just to do nothing but worship, that'd be great. But, um, but God had, had so for, for, for Jerusalem, for the city of Jerusalem, um, coming back, for it being rebuilt, God is saying one of the most important things that needs to be established, yes, you need to be brave. Yes, you need to be diligent. Yes, you need to know, know truth and know, and, and, and know the word, but you need to be a worshiping people. Now, why am I saying that that's one of the things that's most important? Because in chapter 12, almost the entire chapter 12, if it's not listing more names, it's describing a worship service. So let's go to chapter 12. And there's a bunch of names, more priests, more Levites, more really awesome people who did really awesome things. And again, I don't want to discredit them by messing up their names. So we're going to go all the way down to verse 31. And so Nehemiah is saying, here's what I did as we got ready to inhabit the city. He says, so I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. So um, anyone who has a problem with like choirs in the church, it's in the Bible. Okay, so um, one went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and then he kind of add some names and describes more of what they did. So there's one on the right hand of the wall. Let's go down to verse 38. Uh, And it says, the other Thanksgiving choir, I love that they're called Thanksgiving choirs. They're not just choirs, but their whole purpose, their whole ministry is just to give thanks, just to sing um, in thanks. Uh, And so the other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. And I was behind them. So we, we, we skipped this part. But um, Ezra is actually with the first group. And Nehemiah goes with the second group. So he's also part of the choir. And I can just kind of picture him with his book. I'm sure they had books. Um, and, the, you know, they're singing in the choir. Um, and I was behind them with half the people on the wall. Going past the tower of the ovens as far as the broad wall. And above the gate of Ephraim. Above the old gate. Above the fish gate. The tower of Han. Hananel, the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Sheep Gate, and they stopped by the gate of the, of the prison. So the two Thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I and the, and the half of the rulers with me, he named some more names. And at the, at the bottom of verse 42, the singers sang loudly with Jezariah the director. They even have a choir director. I'm telling you, it's in the Bible. It's awesome. Um, also that day, they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. They offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. It's a beautiful picture, you know. Um, and, uh, and I'm kind of biased, and that's why I'm, I'm spending more time here, but... Um, Nehemiah goes through great pains to describe in vivid detail this elaborate worship service where he says, once we decided who was going to live in the city, now we're going to have this, 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 this worship service and everyone gets to sing, right? Um, and, and yes, again, it's important that you're mighty men of valor. It's important that you're diligent to teach God's word. Um, 
but all of us are going to sing. And even myself, I'm not too, and so as, I'm speaking as Nehemiah, even Nehemiah says, even myself, I'm not too, too good, I'm not too important, I'm not too high up on the, the, the ladder of authority to be part of a choir singing exclusively for the thanksgiving of God. And what's really neat about how it's described is he says, as, as they're singing songs of thanksgiving, it says in verse 43, that God had made them rejoice with great joy. Their thanksgiving turned into joy. And then their joy became a testimony to all the nations around them that hated them because it said the women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off for miles around. Um, they were singing with so much joy that they could be heard from, it says, from, from, from afar off. We don't know how far off that is, uh, but you get the picture. Um, so in the history of God's people, they seldom fail more miserably or more completely than when their worship becomes watered down, than when they begin to mingle their worship with the worship of other gods, or when their worship becomes lip service, and, and over and over again in the prophets, God says, you're, doing, you're, you're, you're worshiping me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, right? And, and worship has, has lost its meaning. Worship has lost its focus. It becomes more about the tradition and, and, and how it can benefit them and, and, and what's the minimum they have to do in order to keep God happy. And that is what begins to, 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 to contribute to... Uh, to the decomposing of their faith structure, of their covenant faithfulness, when their worship begins to get watered down. Again, we're meant to see parallels today. And I believe that few things um, threaten to water down the cause and the calling of the church um, as when our worship becomes about us, as when our our worship becomes watered down. Is when it becomes lip service, when it becomes just rote, when it becomes just the thing that we do. Um, and I've <laughs> several of the times that Pastor Victor has has asked me to teach or to preach. I've I've often thought, man, I would I would love to do uh, a, a teaching just on worship. And I'm always afraid that when I do that, someone's going to think I'm targeting them. Um, and so that's why I haven't done it yet. Uh, but if we ever leave a worship service saying to ourselves, I didn't get much out of that, okay, we're on dangerous ground. If you ever leave a worship service and you think to yourself, eh, I didn't get much out of that, then you're missing it. Okay, I've been, this is not, this is, this is not like a testimony to me, or, or this, this is just because this is where God's had me. I've been in so many worship services in my life you know, I was raised going to church. Uh, I've been in churches that had choirs, churches that had praise teams and everything in between. Um, went to a Bible college where we were required to go to chapel, and they had student bands rotating, leading chapels, and some of them were student bands, you know, and some of them were pretty good. Uh, I've been in worship services where, man, I, 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 don't, I don't like to assume someone's intentions, but I... I'm pretty sure the worship leaders were, were in it for the attention. I'm pretty sure they were in it just to get the eyes on themselves. 
And I've been in worship services where there's such a clear anointing. It could be anyone up on stage, but the Spirit of God is tangible. It's, 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 it's almost physical. Um, I've worshipped to, <laughs> to radio songs, to old hymns, even a little bit of rap and hip-hop, which isn't my thing. Um, if the words and the lyrics are scriptural, if the words and the lyrics are taken from Scripture, and I can sincerely offer them to the Lord as, as an honest prayer, as an honest reflection of my heart, there should never be a time where I'm too good or I'm too inconvenienced or I'm too insecure or I'm too anything to worship. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Because Jesus is worthy of our worship. And part of what God is saying here is before anything else, before you can re-engage the promised land and the covenants thereof, you need to remember that I am worthy of your worship and no other God is. Do not repeat the mistakes of your history. Um, I am worthy of your exclusive worship. I am worthy of your sincere and heartfelt worship. And as you offer me that worship, I will offer you joy unimaginable, joy unignorable, joy that enhances the testimony of my reality more than any words you could, you could share. Why? Because I am worthy. And Jesus is worthy of our worship. So there should never be a time, as long as the songs being, being led, again, um, there's, there's, there are some songs out there, I'm not sure what Bible they're reading, you know. Um, but if the, if the words from the music are biblically based and they reflect a sincere heart, should never be a time where you say, oh, I can't worship to that, okay? Because what's happened is worship has become about you. Worship has become about your comfort zone and what you think it should be. And um, some of the most, <laughs> this is another pet peeve. I'm just going to go off on a tangent. I'm going to, yeah, soapbox is there. Here we go. You know, um, I, 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 I hear people and I understand, you know, people who say, well, I don't, I don't sing because I don't sing very well. I don't think God cares how well we sing. And I have, I'm not a great singer either, but, I, you know, but I've, I've, I've sat and stood next to people worshiping and to my ear, I'm thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, if I ever feel insecure about my musical talent, then I'm going to go to this person because they make me feel great about it. Um, um, but that's my flesh, because they're out there, and they're singing the loudest, and they're, 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 they're proclaiming their joy in the Lord, and, uh, and that's a conviction to me, because there have been times where I have felt I shouldn't sing, because I don't sing very well. I'm just going to sit here, right? And then it becomes about me again, okay? Um, if we're going to take hold of, of our calling to be kingdom builders and of our our, our destiny in God's new Jerusalem that is yet to come, we must be people of valor, people of bravery. Uh, we must be people of the word, people who, who diligently study the word, diligently teach the word, and we must be people of worship, sincere, heartfelt, joy-filled worship. Not performance, not ecstasy, not emotionalism. That's a whole other tangent I could go off on that I won't. Um, I think uh, true worship will elicit an emotional response, but it should not be emotionally based. You know, it should be based on the truth and reality of who Jesus is. 
Um, but we must be people of worship. So um, the Jews under Nehemiah, they, they celebrate, they recognize what God has done um, with this massive, amazing, joy-filled worship service, and God is honored by it, and nations from afar off hear it, and they can't deny that God is real. So um, we should do the same. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I know that we, we don't have as clear a blueprint for what we are to build as your people in the book of Nehemiah did. Lord, we, we also know that, that Jesus himself said that we need to build. We need to build our lives upon him, upon the rock, so that when the floods come and the rains pour, that we'll be on a firm foundation. Father, I pray that we would seek you daily for each day's blueprint of what that looks like, what it looks like to build your kingdom and to build our lives on Christ. And as we do so, uh, Father, would you overwhelm us and overcome us with your goodness, with, uh, with your love, with your grace, uh, so that we would dedicate ourselves to, to thanksgiving. Lord, I pray you would receive our thanksgiving and you would turn it back to us in the form of joy. And that that joy would just fuel um, the testimony of who you are to those around us. Father, would you build your kingdom through us and in our midst uh, for your glory. Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.